you don't have one already. Well done. All right. Wow, that was like the fastest collect yourself I think I've ever seen after a break. Not bad. Uh, good to be with you guys. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, all right. Uh, my name is Jason Alexander, and I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm, I am going to give the sermon this morning. Um, so for those of you who've, who have not met, uh, hello. Uh, I'm sure you're you're wonderful people. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm excited to talk to you this morning. Um, we talk about Jesus. That seems appropriate. Um, uh, I had um, the distinct privilege of attending as a fly on the wall kind of your, uh, your banquet last night. I don't know what this was, but maybe I'll use that if things start dying down this morning. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, that, I don't even know what was happening there, and I was dying laughing. So that, that, was, that was really good. Um, it, it's been, um, yeah, it's been a real joy for Justine and Hannah and our friend uh, Kendra, who came with us from uh, St. Louis, uh, to visit with you guys and to spend the weekend. I've, I've learned a lot in... Um, we talked about Job yesterday, for those of you who didn't come. So um, that can go one of two ways. <laughs> it's a, it's a heavy material, but it, I think it went okay. So um, uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know that you'll need a text, but if you have a Bible, maybe keep it handy. I tried to curate some slides for us this morning um, uh, with my own translations. That way I can make the Bible say what I want it to say. So, just kidding. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, I, I, I give uh, the, the talk this morning uh, the title, By the Book, um, and I, I guess we'll be exploring like uh, the dangers of paying too close attention to the rules. That sounds fun, doesn't it? <laughs> you, you have to pay attention to the rules. What happens if the rules become an obsession for you? Uh, has that ever happened to you? Um, it's, it's not a pleasant way to live your life. Um, and Jesus actually has a lot to say about this topic. Uh, do you, if you've read any of the New Testament or any of the gospel, you've encountered, um, there we go, you've encountered uh, these uh, characters called the Pharisees, um, teachers of the law and, and the priests and the Sadducees and uh, good guys or bad guys? Yeah, <laughs> they're okay guys. I guess they're as good as any. But, but they often are not cast in the most favorable light in the Christian Bible. And yet we encounter them so frequently. It's almost like, at least in the gospel, every other story has to do with some super uh, smart religious person. And why do you think it is that we encounter those folks so much in the Bible? You ever think about that? Because it's us. <laughs> we have the potential to, to become like that. They're not there for us to just marvel and say, boy, what a bunch of silly religious people that didn't really get it. They're there because that's what happens to all of us when we 
become too obsessed with, with the Bible, with, with the rules, with the laws, the commands, if they're misappropriated in our lives. You ever heard the, the phrase majoring in the minors? That's what happens to, to, to us. It's, it's happened to me. Um, so I, I want to just take, we're, we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, uh, but I, I just want to take a few moments to talk through what I think are some healthy practices for, for Bible reading in the church, because that's where all the rules I'm referring to are going to be uh, uh, the Bible. Um, uh, so first of all, have you heard the language of being Bible-based? Good or bad? Yeah, kind of. Maybe. But, but that can slip off into a bad direction if we're not careful. Because we're, we're not only people of the book, right? Like our, our goal in life isn't to just familiarize ourselves with a text, right? To just obsess over and even borderline worship a text. And the text that we place at the center of our communities in the church is the Bible. And lo and behold, this text would not want you to do that. <laughs> there's, there's lots of warnings about making sure that scripture is read with, with um, the, the, the aim of having an encounter with the living God not some ancient figure from the past that lives only in the pages of a book. Our goal isn't just to read scripture, but to read scripture for the purpose of getting a sense of who the creator, judge, ruler, redeemer of all things, who, who he is. Um, and, and we know we talk, about, we talk about the Bible with the language of the word of God, right? You familiar with that? Bible as the Word of God. Um, you know, there's a moment at the, be the very beginning of uh, the Gospel according to John where he, he refers to what takes a few verses to discover what he's referring to, but it's Jesus. And he calls him, what does he call him? The, the Word of God. And, and there's, there's even in, in the, there's a, there's a sermon slash letter called Hebrews later in the Bible and it begins by saying that all of the things that were written in the past were written for our, our good. God used to speak through the prophets and through the scriptures. He says, but now God has spoken to us through his son, the exact representation of God's own radiance. See, the idea is never that later Hebrews will say as well that the word of God is living and active. The idea isn't that this is just some super practical religious book that sits on our shelf. The idea is that the word of God would leap off the pages and become incarnate in the life of a community. That the word of God isn't just something that we consult as a resource, but it's an embodied reality in the person of faith. And we see God's word at its fullest uh, it's precisely what God would want to say to the world lived out in Jesus Christ. And the goal of the church, I'll tell you what, a failed reading of the Bible would be the one that doesn't have any transformative power in our lives. When, when it fails, 
to, to move from just a text to a live reality, there's a disconnect somewhere. How you doing? Hopefully that's not news. But, but we, can, we can often, um, we can get obsessed with Scripture, mostly because there's so much in Scripture about helping us live the life of faith. And we can begin to treat the Bible as if it's a read and apply tool. You just read what it says, you take it from there, and you apply it to your life. Number one, we don't do that consistently. There's much in the Bible we don't follow. But also, if we tried to do that, it would get weird fast. <laughs> so we understand it in our gut, in our bones, that we have to make decisions about what to do. It's not just an instruction manual that we can take a part of it and just apply it right away. And God wouldn't let us off the hook that easily because we'd be tempted to, to have a relationship with a book that's somehow connected from some detached deity. But God instead wants us to take in Scripture, as it seems, and as communities and as people of faith, pray and be led by that God into living out those same, that same reality, those same ideals, those same principles, that same faith, bringing those commands to fresh light in each age and in each place. And it might look subtly different in each age and place, believe it or not. And that's a good thing because it means that God's word is doing its work in his very diverse communities. I spent a long time trying to get my head around the Bible and uh, studied it like crazy. And when you study the history of the Bible, it's exciting because like, oh, that's what these passages mean. But pretty soon you paint yourself into a corner. Like, I'll give you the, the, the classic example. I hear, I hear this a lot from, from preachers who are just uh, beginning like critical historical study of the Bible. Uh, think of the birthday card verse. What is it? Or the, the uh, graduation verse on every Christian. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. And, and if we spend some serious time with Jeremiah, we realize that what he's actually saying is, I know the plans you don't. I want you to sit tight in exile until the time is fulfilled. So you, instead of trying to get out of exile and create your plans, you just need to trust me and seek me. So immediately, like, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with Israel. But wait a second, not so fast. Because it, it, if this book is merely written as history for, for those people back then, and the fact that God has plans for his people is no relevance to us, then why bother with it? Do you see what I'm saying? We can quickly make the history the God, and all of a sudden this book becomes so impractical to us. This is why in universities uh, across uh, the Western world, uh, religious studies departments, Bible departments are shutting their doors because they've rendered the text impotent. It has no influence in life and it just becomes a text to look at and very few people care about that. There's not many jobs in that. So the, the, the church, though, is meant to take on not discrete passages for practical living, but a, as we see, uh, a, a untamable uh, collection of, of books that that together tell a kind of narrative. 
wherein we see God and his love and his will and his intentions on display. And it's a shaping kind of experience for us to take in this story, to hear these commands. So the church has a, a task before it. It's, it's very easy to be smart about the Bible. It's very easy to know the history. All you need is a library card. And you can go look that stuff up. What's a challenge is never letting God's word become just a tool, but something that allows us to have a relationship and an insight into God's will for his good world. Uh, easier said than done. So let me show you how this works. You guys okay? How I think this works anyway. Oh, no? No? There we are. Uh, from, from Reverend Child's uh, 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 Biblical Theology. He says, Scripture is not self-referential, but points beyond itself to the reality of God. Don't you feel that in your reading of Scripture? That Scripture isn't saying to us, just look at us and study us. Just get to know us. But Scripture's trying to engage the reader. Your God is alive. He's trying to, the, the text is pointing beyond itself. It's an end in that we get to enjoy and delight and feed on these words about God, but it's a means in that it facilitates a lived reality wherein we get to live with the God that's being described. He's not a figure from the past. He's active in every age. And this is good. Knowing the scriptures is not just a matter of what one reads, it is equally a matter of how one reads. Isn't that important as well? How far does the, 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 the Bible reader who's not open to learning from God about, about God or about himself or about his communities, how far does that person get in terms of flourishing or becoming an example of faith? Not, not, not very. Because our posture as we approach scripture, our humility, uh, our, our, our tendency to want to domesticate the Bible and make it all about me and my life is not a posture of humility. And it quickly becomes an exercise in just memorizing theology. There's a, there's a, Jesus dealt with people smarter than all of us who spent a lifetime, their professional Biblicists, the professional Bible scholars, and they knew the Bible as well as anyone, uh, better than anyone. And Jesus never challenges them on their knowledge of the Bible, but he challenges them on how they're taking it in. There's a point in John's Gospel where he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Do you think that about the Bible? That in them you have eternal life? It's a, it's a reasonable thought. It says, but it is they that testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. See what he just did? He didn't skip over the Bible and make it redundant. What he did was he said, you're so focused on the text, right? You understand it. You're trying to know God. But I am the referent of that story, of those texts. And ta-da. Here I am, but you don't see me. 
So how much do you really know the scriptures? It's like you, you see the trees, but you missed the forest. You're not reading in a way that would lead you to see exactly what scripture is doing. Because if you were paying attention and you were careful and you were open, open to being surprised by God and not trying to put a leash on him, you might notice that God's will, everything the scriptures talk about, is being fulfilled in your presence. And the life that you seek in scripture, scripture is telling you is with me. But you don't see that because you're Bible focused. You see how that can, it's a slippery slope? Um, let's get into the text that I think demonstrates, I think this is really amazing how this works out. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 12. Uh, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, uh, Sadducee is a, um, a sect that little is known about. Uh, they appear a couple times. There's, a, there's a, a, uh, a first century text called Josephus where they come up a bit. They come up a bit in the rabbinic literature. And then they're mentioned uh, by Luke in the book of Acts. So it's not fair to form a, a solid opinion about the Sadducees because all we know of them pretty much in the world is what we get from the few passages in the Bible and what we get there, probably related to the priest Sadak uh, um, in the temple. Uh, but they, they seem to be an aristocratic group. That is, they're wealthy, upper crust, influential, uh, knew the Bible very well. Uh, they had a, it seems they had a, a, a strong presence in the temple and in leading the religious life in Jerusalem. Uh, they, uh, the Sadducees, um, it seems, uh, didn't believe in any kind of unseen world. Sound familiar? Can you think of a context where people don't believe in what they can't test and approve? Sounds a lot like Madison, Wisconsin uh, today. Um, but, or any university town, really. But, but uh, and, and their scripture for them was the first five books of our Bible uh, called Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. Those texts were authoritative for them. They weren't paying as much attention to the, the, the rest of the books that we uh, uh, call Scripture. So for them, if you were going to convince them about anything about God, you would need to, you'd need to draw on those, that source. Uh, the, the Moses it was, was their authority. Um, so Sadducees, okay. Uh, also, uh, Sadducees also came to him and asked him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but did not leave a child, that man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, there were seven brothers. The first one married. When he died... He left no offspring. The second married her and died, leaving no offspring. And likewise the third. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the, resurrec also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. What in the world? What kind of question is that? Like, first of all, that is a ridiculous scenario. 
you might want to see if the wife is doing something wrong, if all seven brothers have died and she's still living. Yeah, that's right. Something's, something's off there. Uh, I would be scared to be the next brother in line. Um, they, they just drop like flies. This is obviously a hypothetical situation because it's just absurd. The chances of that happening are ridiculous. But it's nonetheless, it's a good puzzle. It really is. If, if we pay attention, it's a, it's a good, good uh, thought experiment. Now, the, the, the Sadducees aren't juiced about the resurrection from the dead, bodies rising up and, and living again. And if you provide lower classes with a hope like that and you're on the upper classes, that can be a threat. So I, I think that would make sense. So what they're trying to do is, it seems, I don't want to be too hard on them because the text doesn't say they're trying to trap Jesus. Maybe this is a legitimate question. It's a ridiculous question, but maybe it's an honest heart. But it sure sounds like they're trying to trick him and teach Jesus a little something, uh, which never goes well. But they're trying to, to help Jesus understand Moses is the authority here. And you're talking about the resurrection, so tell us then. Here's a, here's a problem for you. That whole idea of uh, a life, an afterlife. And there wasn't a, a super articulate uh, uh, expression of afterlife in the Old Testament or in Moses. They, they weren't thinking like we as Christians are thinking. Um, and I'll get into that in a bit here, but it had to do with having kids, actually, uh, how, how one would continue after death. But they, they say, Moses has our authority, Jesus, not you. If Moses ain't talking about a resurrection and you are, guess who we're siding with? And here's an example of why. Because Moses gave uh, the command in Deuteronomy Chapter 25, it's five, 5 through 10. You could go read it if you're uh, into reading Deuteronomy. Uh, it also appears, the, the idea, this idea of brothers taking over wives for their deceased brother occurs in uh, Genesis 38 with the story of Tamar and in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. We see the same kind of thing. Um, so, but it's, it's a protection for the family. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. But Jesus didn't read the, the Torah. Jesus didn't read Moses as a puzzle to be solved. He's noticing the forest as well as the trees. And so, but before I go further, let's, let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, aren't you deceived for this reason? You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. Like, that's exactly what they claim they do know. Is there a religious studies department at the University of uh, Wisconsin at Eau Claire? How about we march down there right now and tell them they don't know what they're talking about and they don't understand the power that they have? <laughs> You've done it. <laughs> Good for you. There you go. It's very humble of you. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so, so the, this, is, this is the kind of the experience would be to try to shut down people who actually do know the Bible quite well. And Jesus can say, you don't know, you have no idea. You don't, you don't understand the power of God at all. And that leads me to believe you don't even understand the scriptures that you're, you're so proficient in. 
and, and, and studying. For when they rise from the dead, that is, human beings, when they rise from the dead, uh, they, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, are like angels in heaven. Uh, very careful here, not our angels in heaven. Our, our deceased, uh, according to biblical theology, do not become angels. That's not what's being said here. Um, now, for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Do you think they've read this? <laughs> in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are very much mistaken. What an answer. He goes right to their Bible. It's like, I don't need Isaiah to talk to you about the afterlife. We can, we can go right with Moses. That's fine with me. God gives these commands for uh, deceased uh, within the family because how you continue, death is a problem, right? I, I think you'd admit that. Um, humans are creations of God of dust and God's breath, and they're not immortal beings in and of themselves. Humans need, we see this in Genesis, for humans to live, they need God to provide. He gives them the tree of life. And when he casts them out of the garden and blocks the way to the tree of life, they no longer have access. A human couldn't just, the first human couldn't stand up from the dust and say, thanks God, I'll take it from here. Humans are dependent, we're transient, we're weak, we're fragile. We were created that way. Now it's not God's intention for humanity that we would spring up for a moment and then evaporate. God's will is that we would live with him in his world together. That's the whole picture of Scripture. But nonetheless, because of our rejecting what God would, would want in the world, we're given over to our fragility and our weakness. And we are a dying species, right? We, we feel it. It's, it's, it's what brings at the root of most of our anxiety in life, I think, is the fact that we know the window is closing day by day. I think. As, as I... Uh, I'm at the top of the hill, they say, 40 years old, and I'm going down. I'm starting to think more about my mortality. It's horrible. Um, but but uh, Jesus, uh, Scripture, Moses, acknowledges the fact that we live in a world where death seems to run the show. We're, it's a tyranny of death. We all submit in the end to death. And so when you have no way, when you die... And you have no children. You remember, I, I, I mentioned this to you before about the challenge of barrenness in the Bible. And when the family can't continue and you become extinct as a family, the only way for you to continue is to have children. And if you ha can't have children, you are a reproach. You are cursed. You are cut off because with you, the family dies and the grave becomes your legacy. But if you can have children, you can keep the family moving. This is how you deal with the fact that you die. Now this, is, this might be a shocker, but it's almost as if what Jesus is doing here is saying, you see, marriage is provisional. It's not an eternal thing. It's given to humanity given the fact that we need it. But he says, well, at the resurrection, don't let the present govern your assumptions of the future. Because in the resurrection, it's not like that. 
death is no longer the, the, the reigning paradigm. How are you guys doing? So, so this is a, a way of dealing with the fact that barrenness and death are a part of our lives. And Jesus understands that. Like it's, it's, it's not the rule. So your question is, 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 is ridiculous. That uh, wh whose wife will she be? Whose wife would she be anyways? The last or the first or the one she loved the most? Um, but the assumption is how things are is how they shall always be. But Jesus is trying to expand their imaginations, get them to let go of their Bible quoting and theology, logic chopping, and to help them see what God is trying to accomplish by this. He says, I'll start with Moses for you. He says, don't you remember when, do you know the story of Moses, by the way? You know anything about Moses? Uh, at least from Prince of Egypt or uh, the Ten Commandments at Easter. Um, but but Moses, Moses is, um, he is a, like a refugee uh, acting as a shepherd for the last 40 years while in the cities in Egypt, God's people, the promised people, find themselves in bondage. And Moses is out on his own and he encounters a bush on fire, but the bush isn't burning up. And, uh, and Yahweh uh, calls Moses over. And they have this encounter where he tells them, you know, you're my solution to the problem of all those people uh, back in Egypt. He's like, I've been out, I ran away from Egypt 40 years ago. I can't go back there. But when God appears to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I am the God. It's not actually what the text says. It says, I, I, the, I the God. See, we're, we're tempted to think what, what Jesus is saying here is, don't you see? God is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive somewhere. Isn't that what it sounds like he's saying? I don't think so. I think the point is they're long gone. Not that they're alive somewhere in heaven. There's a bigger statement at work here that you miss when you get too focused on, on the text. What would, it, what would it be like to hear, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob, when your people are in bondage. Would that be encouraging? Why? What did God do for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He made these great promises. Promises that he intends to fulfill. And even though they're long gone, it calls to mind God's faithfulness to those promises. And by the way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all had barren wives. So what's this idea about God can't bring life forth? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are God's way of reminding people, I'm the faithful God. You think death has the last word? Then I guess my promises will end with death. 
the promise of life that God holds out to these ancestors, that he will make them fruitful to inherit all creation. If death is the last word, then those promises are meaningless. You see what Jesus is doing? He's making them wrestle with the character of God. You know how helpful that would be for Moses? Well, you're the God who, who made promises. And Jesus is drawing on this to show them, not to prove to them the ghosts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in heaven, unmarried. That's not his point. It's to say, you mean to tell me your vision of God is so shrunken that when you read the words of Moses and God's faithfulness, you hear him saying, ultimately, death will win. That's your reading. That's what you're going to stick with. You miss the forest through the trees. Do you see that? Jesus is challenging them not to just notice a couple of verses, but to notice God as he's displayed in Scripture, the faithful, life-giving God. Jesus is trying to remind these guys that this thing doesn't end in the grave. It can't, or God is faithless. And God told that to Moses. That's your Bible that I'm, I'm talking about here. In Genesis 18, uh, I mentioned this yesterday, uh, God says to Sarah, who's barren, is anything too wonderful for God? You see, that's, I think, what Scripture is trying to get us to believe. Is anything impossible for this God? Is there anything he couldn't do? Is there any possible way his promises won't come to pass? Or am I too focused like this? I think the Bible is trying to expand and broaden our understanding of the kind of faithfulness God has to his people. Let's see. I want to go here and we'll come back. When Paul talks about uh, Abraham and Sarah, remember she's, she's barren and they're elderly, uh, elderly Mesopotamian couple, and he promises this couple, you will be the, fa the father, the, the ancestors to many people who will inherit a good name in the land. And Paul brings up Abraham to make a point about faith. And this is from Romans. He says, with, with, without being weak in faith, he considered his own body dead because he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's, that's what uh, Paul's Greek actually says there. Abraham thought of himself as dead and his wife's womb as dead. Well, there's your theology for a resurrection right there. If, if the idea is that God can bring life from dead places, what makes you so convinced that resurrection can't happen? You haven't been paying attention, obviously. God brings life from dead places, and you have a problem with a resurrection. You see that? You're missing the forest through the trees. Even uh, by faith, even though Sarah herself was barren and he was too old, he received the ability to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be trustworthy. So in fact, children were fathered by one man and this man as good as dead 
like the number of the stars in the sky, like innumerable grains of sand. Abraham was dead, and yet we're all here because of him. It's kind of the point. Don't you see God can bring life from death? Worse than death, God can bring life from barrenness, which is the end of the family line. God can bring life from dead places. Maybe you forgot to, to see that. This is my favorite of, of these uh, verses. Let's see. What did I do? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Do you know this terrifying story in Genesis chapter 22? God promises essentially Abram, uh, Abraham heaven, and then he says, now go sacrifice heaven <laughs> in your son. And Abraham does it. It says he had received the promises, yet he was ready to offer up his only son. God had told him, through Isaac, your descendants will carry on your name. And he reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. And in a sense, he did receive him back from there. Do you see what Abraham did? Who told Abraham that if Isaac were to die in this sacrifice, he could maybe get Isaac back through a resurrection? Who told Abraham that? Where did he get that information? There's no scripture. We can look. There's no, script, there's no one verse that says, uh, I can raise the dead and I will do so. It's not going to be that easy. What instead is Abraham doing? He's thinking about this God and his ability and his faithfulness and his ability to keep promises. And he's doing one of these. He's taking a risk. He's taking a risk. I, I think I can trust this God. I think, I think given my experience with this God so far, given what I know about this God so far, I think even if I kill this kid, I could receive him back. God actually never wanted him to kill the kid, but it's, it's a test. And Abraham does wonderfully because he's, he's not just looking to live by a book. He's dealing with the God to whom he has to uh, live, right? He's, he's dealing with the God before him, and he's making decisions based on his understanding of who God is. He's taking risks, even though there's no scripture to tell him that what he hopes will happen will happen. That's what trust looks like. And when you get too focused, you show me the scripture that says I should go uh, do that thing. Or tell me the scripture that says I should go do that thing. What if you just have a humble heart and you're looking and trusting God? And what if you just did one of these once in a while and you took a step? Not because a verse told you to, but because you're thinking bigger than just instruction manual kind of devotion. You're thinking about God as he's presented in scripture and you're trying to live out that faith, those acts of uh, what seem like risk, right? Be because of, uh, because no one told you. How are you guys doing? I'll, I'll wrap this up. There's not much more I'd like to say to you about this. Um, I'll read to you from William Lane's commentary on Mark just to go back to Mark. Um, but it is conceivable that inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death, of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. That is a grim picture. <laughs> so like, 
Your future is indicated for you by how hard your life already is. Like, get ready for your future, which is death. That doesn't make any sense. That that's, what God, that's how God was working. If death, the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant and of which the formula, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, is a symbol. It is infidelity to his covenant that God will resurrect the dead. Jesus, in citing from the story of Moses at the bush, he showed how resurrection faith is attached in a profound way to the central concept of biblical revelation, the covenant, and how the salvation promised by God to the patriarchs and their descendants in virtue of the covenant contain, contains implicitly the assurance of resurrection. Do you see? The promises assure God's uh, God's promises will, will win. The covenant assures God's promises will be fulfilled. It was the failure to appreciate the essential link between God's covenant faithfulness and the resurrection which had led the Sadducees into their grievous error. This isn't super profound in a lot of ways, I guess. So like, because it's basically saying, as, as, you're, as you're thinking through Scripture, don't forget to notice God. <laughs> Don't forget to trust God. Amen. Come to Scripture with an openness to being surprised. Come to Scripture with a willingness to have your assumptions challenged and overturned. Come to Scripture, expect to be called to a kind of faith that's unreasonable. And I think if we constantly are dealing with the God that's revealed in Scripture and not just keeping rules, you follow that? Not just trying to get the rules right, but seeking to see God in Scripture. I think if we do that, one, I think our communities become an exciting place to live. I think our neighborhoods become exciting places to live. I think our jobs all of a sudden become uh, possibilities we never imagined because we're thinking through what, what the, the impossible God can do. Um, but I think more than anything, it will prevent us from having a stale, rule-bound, religious life. It'll keep us seeing the picture always. And it takes this kind of leap. I, I, I talked about this with Job yesterday. It takes these kinds of leaps to see how the cross fits into God's plan. There isn't, you can search the Old Testament and look for a passage that says, Jesus will come from Galilee, born to Mary and Joseph, and they'll hang him on a Roman cross. You, you can look all you want. You're not going to find a verse like that. If you want to see how Jesus is hanging on the cross, how the resurrection fits into God's plan, you have to take in the story of God's work. That's the only way it'll make sense. If you're just looking for predictions here and there, Jesus will not make any sense. But once you've seen God who suffers for his people and promises life and you arrive at the cross, it's like, oh, that makes, that makes a lot more sense. This isn't out of thin air that God would, God's own son would perish at the hands of the Romans so that we might all have hope. 
But do you see, you, you, you'd have to, it's very easy if you're a Bible reader even to not see Jesus Christ. So I, I think it's, a, it's exciting that our Bible reading can lead us to the living, living God. And he's, he's brought us this morning, at least uh, uh, now, to the bread and the cup, which reminds us that what Jesus has done at the cross has everything to do with what God has always been up to, with Abram, with, with Noah, with Adam. He's always wanted to offer life and renewal and forgiveness. And we have that at the cross. So let's pray and uh, we will commune and remember. Uh, let's bow with me. Father, um, we are always and from the day of our birth, our conception really, I suppose, for, and before, dependent upon you for our living. You fill our lungs with breath. You wake us from our sleep. You lead us into your world, God, and you, you care for us. You comfort us in our sadness and in our grief and in our loss. And you provide a hope beyond all calculation, God. As we think about your faithfulness, it reminds us of how um, short we come. <laughs> For me, how unimaginative I've been. We pray, God, as we, as we experience your love and faithfulness, as we, as we take it in in Scripture, that we would be humbled, uh, maybe even embarrassed by your love, to the point of always trusting you, always taking steps of faith because of your love, always leaning back on the bread, what the bread and the cup uh, bring us to, your death, your body, your blood, your resurrection. Because you've done that, God, there is such security. There is such um, energy for being able to live the life of faith. Open our eyes, as the Psalms say, to see good things in your law. Show us uh, your work as we open scripture on a regular basis. And it's in Christ the Lord we pray. Amen.